Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. And so right from the start, I just had that obsession, that desire to intoxicate myself to whatever capacity I could handle without dying. My guest today has asked to remain anonymous but she has recently celebrated 10 years sober and she's here to share her story with us. Welcome to the show. Okay. Thank you for having me on the show. This is super awesome. My recovery journey. So a little bit of background. I was born and raised in a small town in Pennsylvania. I'm 32 years old. I currently live in Las Vegas. When I was growing up, my parents got divorced when I was two. I was well taken care of growing up. To just share honestly about, you know, my recovery and background, there was some turbulence in my childhood, I guess. And so with recovery, I guess the first time I was introduced to drugs and alcohol was around like fifth or sixth grade when I found a bong behind the couch and I didn't know what it was. And I just started to notice the behaviors around me. One of my parents was an active addiction. And because this is again, a recorded interview and I still have family members who are alive out of respect for my family, I'll just say parent instead of mom or dad. So, you know, one of my parents was an active addiction So I just refer to that as my environmental and genetic factors that there was a parent using. And, you know, good old dare school, I knew it probably wouldn't be a good idea to do drugs. And at first, I I didn't want to do any drugs. But somewhere around sixth or seventh grade, I got this curiosity. And I was like, well, it'll be mind expanding, not mind numbing. And if I can properly educate myself about substances, it'll be cool. Like, you know, I was wearing the tie dye Grateful Dead shirts. I wanted to be a little hippie type. So curiosity, experimenting, this attitude and mindset, I'll do the drugs, the drugs won't do me. I I remember all my firsts, like I remember the first time I smoked weed and honestly made me paranoid and I I didn't really like smoking that much. And I remember the first time I drank, I drank until I blacked out and puked. And I was like, yes, dude, this is great. I loved it. I was like, man, this is who, you know, the party was on. And so right from the start, I just had that obsession, that desire to intoxicate myself to 
whatever capacity I could handle without dying. In recovery, I'm, I'm always taught it's important to share the message of recovery. It's not about sharing war stories or glorifying like how messed up I used to get. But sometimes in, in our recovery community, when there's people who are struggling or, or, or they're, not, they're not sure if they can relate where they're at, I like to share what it was like because when I first would hear recovery lingo and stuff, like I couldn't comprehend it. Like I had to hear some nitty gritty war stories to be like, okay, I can relate because I grew up around it. So it was really ingrained in me to glorify and normalize drug use. So I was really used to that. So pretty much high school years were experimenting and partying and hallucinogens. I was 15 the first time I did a line of math. And I joke around, I say I stayed up for a couple of years and then I went to sleep for a couple of years because when I was 17, I tried opiates and oxys and I started shooting up and I developed the habit. So ages 17 through 21 was heroin and opiate use. And at some point I crossed the invisible line where I wanted to stop and I couldn't. And I would willingly put myself into treatment centers. Like I'm going to detox and going to rehab. I'm done. I want to quit. I'm not going anywhere with this. The seed of recovery was planted. I was also arrested and hospitalized at points, just all the lows, hospitalizations, jails, overdoses. I had a grand mal seizure from benzo withdrawal. When I was 17, I had a traumatic loss where my best friend was murdered. And that really tipped me over the edge, one of my best, best friends. And it was very tragic and gruesome. And that probably tipped me over into wanting to just be numb all the time, even more. It was right after she was murdered that I went to rehab for the first time. And my first time in my 90 days, when I was 18, I still had the whole obsession the whole time. I was like, I know when I get out of here, I'm going to use. I don't care. I was on juvenile probation. I was just trying to do what I had to do to get out of the treatment, complete it, and be done. And that was what I did. So I was 18, completed that rehab. And then again, 18 through 21 was just checking myself in. So that's the picture of what it was like then. So self-help groups and anonymity, uh, I want to, you know, respect that. But that was what had a huge impact on me. The people who were also in recovery that would say things to me, like keep coming back no matter what. And those people would always be there for me. And when I first heard of the disease concept, I thought, what a pathetic excuse for you to not party. You have a disease. But when it was broken down to me that the threefold disease, a mental obsession, physical compulsion, and spiritual malady, I could grasp the mental obsession part, my will. It is my will, my mental obsession to keep picking up. And the battle started when I didn't want to anymore and I knew there was another way and I kept doing it anyways. And I was in a compulsion and I was constantly using even though I didn't want to. And I remember how hard that battle was. So the mental obsession, physical compulsion and spiritual malady, the level of desperation I was at 
the people in recovery would always tell me, get on your knees and ask for your obsession to be lifted. Get, uh, get on your knees and ask for your obsession to be lifted. And I thought that sounded pretty corny and like, you know, but I would keep coming back and I would, I would not, I never gave up. Thank God. I never gave up on my recovery, even though it was a really hard battle. And my eighth time in rehab. So this was where I had a spiritual awakening, a psychic change necessary to bring about recovery. My eighth time in, I was on parole (laughs) and I was going to leave the rehab. It was the same thing where I was willing to go, but a couple days in, I start to get that craving and I get a case of the efforts and I'm not even expecting different results. I'm like, I don't care. I'll just die or go to jail, whatever. So I went to the counselor's office and I was like, my ride either will come get me or she won't, but I want to leave. So I called my friend and my friend was on her way and my bags were packed. And I was, I wanted to go to a festival that weekend. Those were my plans. And I sat, I was in Beavertown, Pennsylvania in this rehab and I was waiting and waiting and she never showed up. And I was at the payphone. I kept calling people over and over, trying to get somebody to come get me not even my friends that were using, like, come on, like I got a little bit of money with me. Like I'll hook you up. Like even they wouldn't come get me. So I was in a lot of pain. I was in a lot of pain and I really wanted to die and no one would come get me. And I hit an emotional and spiritual bottom where I just wanted to die. And I realized I was going to be stuck in that rehab the rest of the night. And I called a woman in recovery who had been my spiritual guide quite a few times, even though I kept relapsing. And in that moment, these words that she said to me literally changed my life. She said, if you leave, picture yourself in a coffin. You are not the kind of alcoholic or addict who makes it. It's your will to leave and your higher powers will to keep you there. You need to contact your higher power or you're going to die. And that was the moment where her words went from my head into my heart. And I realized, oh my God, if I leave here and I keep getting high, I'm probably going to die. And something in me didn't want to die. And I followed that corny old suggestion. I went in the bathroom stall in the rehab and I got on my knees and I said to whoever or whatever is there, please remove my obsession with drugs and alcohol. Please remove my obsession with drugs and alcohol. And that's where I could learn that the disease is cunning and baffling and powerful because there I am, a junkie in rehab for my eighth time on parole, begging a higher power to remove my obsession. And I'm still like, well, what if I'm not done yet? Like I'm in that battle. So that was, you know, I'll bring the steps into it now. That was because I could talk about the steps without violating anonymity, right? Mm -hmm. This is a resource available, the steps admitting I was powerless, that I cannot drink or use. My life was unmanageable. I came to believe a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. And turning my will over for me in that moment looked like going to long-term treatment. And that was what I did. I went through rehab, the halfway house, and a recovery house. And that really saved my life being in that halfway house and like seeing other, other people who are in recovery that like the people working in the house had been through the house, like as clients. So that had a huge impact on me to see people really doing the deal that had a similar story. 
So I continued to do my prayer every morning and every night. And I don't think I mentioned by the grace of God, celebrated 10 years this past April. And it's still a part of my routine um, to pray to my higher power every morning and every night and throughout the day, because that's what I've been taught to do. And it works. So I still do that. And I have I call my higher power God. And I love my relationship with my higher power. God's grace. I'm sober. I can even feel myself like I'm smiling because it truly brings me joy to talk about my relationship with my creator. It's the most beautiful gift I could possibly have in my whole heart and in my beingness. It's just what a joy. So the journey of recovery, hitting bottom, realizing if I pick up a drink or drug, I'll die, being willing to do the work, and there's, there's, there's some major components in my story. When I had nine months sober, I went through a, a major trauma. And one of my parents committed suicide after getting a DUI. And it was really painful and hard, obviously, to go through that. Because I had just gotten sober and I had never really seen this parent as like an alcoholic. They were always functioning and they had gotten their second DUI. And, and they would say to me, like, I, I want to stop. I know I'm an alcoholic. I want to stop and I can't. And I was like, why don't you come to meetings? And they wouldn't go to meetings. And to just like witness that with my sober eyes, it's, it's just a raw and brutal truth. Painful. And it's one of my biggest testimonies to God's grace and a program of recovery that like, thank God that the message of recovery had stuck. And when people would say there is a time, there will come a time when the only thing between you and a drink or drug is your higher power. Do you have a relationship with higher power? Thank God I did. Thank God, you know, I conceded my innermost self because if I would have relapsed over that, I probably would have died too. So been a quite a few years, but I'm still getting emotional talking about it. And being in recovery helps me process my grief and to have forgiveness for my parent that my parent was sick and to be able to process the pain sober and, you know, just share that there's a higher power who kept me sober through that. Thank you, creator. Do we need to pause for any questions or should I just keep rolling with this? No, no, I think you're doing great. Yeah, I'm just pretending. Okay, what? Just pretend. (laughs) No, but I'm definitely relating with a lot of what you're sharing, and and I know that the people that listen to the show regularly are going to know what I'm about to say because I feel like I bring it up all the time. But it was it was I had a a pretty similar experience as far as my spiritual awakening, and I wasn't in rehab, but I had somebody that was that I had gotten close to in meetings and. And I was the same way where I was like in and out and, you know, couldn't make up my mind if I was going to do recovery, if I was going to keep using like one foot in, one foot out. And and he pulled me aside after a meeting and was just like, you got to you got to get it together, man, either do recovery or do drugs and alcohol like you can't do both, like pick one. And if you pick, you know, if you pick drugs and alcohol, you're going to die or go to jail. And you know that or you can do recovery and you don't know what's going to happen with your life, but it's going to be better than what you're doing now. And that was like for you, that moment of, you know, I've heard, I've heard people tell me this time and time and time again, but for whatever reason, like that, that time it got through and it was just like, boom, like let's do recovery. Let's give this thing a try. And I think, 
I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but I think I told him like, all right, I'm going to try recovery for one year. Like you got one year. If my life's not better a year from today, then I'm going back, but I'm going to give it a, a solid try. And that's been, that's seven and a half years ago. So obviously my life has improved immensely since then. That's amazing. Seven and a half years. Congratulations. Thank you. It's awesome. Sorry, I interrupted you. You were about to talk about your career and kind of go into that side of, of your story. When I was 18, I started working in a dive bar strip club in Pennsylvania as a dancer. And, you know, I was already drinking and using. And I, for some reason, was always drawn to exotic dance. I would always say, I want to be a stripper. Maybe it was music or something, the cultural influences. And I love to dance. I do love to dance. I love to dress up. And that was August of 2008. And I still currently work as a dancer. So I've been a dancer for 14 years. And when I got sober, I was like, all right, I guess I can't do this anymore because people, places, and things. I was living in a recovery house and, and a halfway house, and I couldn't dance. And at six months into recovery, I went to a sober Halloween dance and I got dressed up as a burlesque performer. And I was like, I really miss getting dressed up. And I wanted to go back to dancing. And I had a spiritual guide at the time. And she was like, you can do anything and stay sober. She's like, I play a musical instrument. I play in bars sometimes. And from the recovery perspective, it did make me a little scared because we very often hear in our rooms about the, the lifestyle, like working in a bar, the spiritual aspect. So I was kind of like a little scared at first. And I'm speaking like really openly and honestly right now. Oh my gosh. And I hope I don't obsess about it later. I'll be like, you shared too much. So, you know, at that time, when I was in early recovery and unsure, and I was told I could do anything and stay sober, I was still undecided. And at some point, I was like, I'm going to go work at the club again. And I, I knew I wanted to stay sober. So I said a prayer to my higher power to please help me stay sober. Thank God I did, because I knew I didn't want to drink or use. And I had about six months in and did some, some inner work. So, and I also told myself, if I'm going to be a dancer, I want to be a feature entertainer. And I entered into my first exotic dance competition and I started training in athletic pole dancing and doing pole dance competitions. So I've always taken it very seriously as an art and a career and a business and a sport. And so here I am now with, you know, I'm still sober and I work as a dancer. And that's a part of my story. Yeah, and I and I would be curious. I didn't I didn't know if you were going to talk about your career or not because I we discussed it before we started recording. And it was like whatever you're comfortable with, and and you touched on it. But I I feel like at least, and I don't know because I've I've never been in that environment in recovery, but I feel like it would be kind of difficult to to have that career and be in that atmosphere and and not have that temptation. But at the same time, I also understand. And you'd mentioned it, like having that obsession to use or drink lifted from you. And, and I'm in that same boat. Like for me, for work, there's a lot of times where I have to go work and service equipment in bars and stuff. And 
I don't ever have that temptation. I've even had bartenders when I finish like, Hey, you want to shout for the road? And it's like, no, there's nothing about it to me is appealing anymore, which is so crazy to think of because for so many years, my life revolved around getting that next bag, getting that next bottle, getting that next, that next high or, or drunk. And you know, there's like, there's no appeal to it anymore. Even when somebody offers it to me for free, I'm like, I'd, I don't want it. I know I know what the end results are going to be. I and I just there's no there's no desire at all to do it. So I would assume that it's something like that for you where you don't have that desire, but it also seems like it would be kind of could be difficult at times being in that environment and being around people that are intoxicated or on other substances and just navigating that. Yeah. There are times it's difficult and then there's times where it's not <laughs> makes sense makes sense i also didn't realize that there was uh because you were talking about like training for competitions and stuff i didn't realize that there were competitions in in that i guess in that category of dancing i i don't really know much about any kind of dancing if i'm honest so i mean i guess it makes sense because i know there's like competitive ballroom dancing and stuff like that so i guess it makes sense but i i didn't know that either so that's pretty cool yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, its own culture and industry with different intricate layers people might not know about. So yes, exotic dance competitions are a real thing. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a showgirl performance. You put together a themed show with choreography and dancing and and there's so many different elements it could be like um like a girl might be more um like a more of a pole dancer like athletic pole like that's always been my thing like I'll do a themed show and then doing some really powerhouse strong pole dance moves is my show base then there's girls where it might be something more like oh they just do a lot, like the full on burlesque like all burlesque themed or there's the sideshow style, like girls would do fire performances and different things. So it's really neat. It's really neat. And it has a special place in my heart, the showgirl performance and the strip club industry. I mean, it's been a couple of years now and part of my story. So. Well, that's awesome. And, and I think it's beautiful that you were able to continue to do something that you loved, even once you got sober, you know, it, Sounded like in the beginning you weren't able to because of your your living situation being in the halfway house and then you know you you did the what I would consider the right thing. In my opinion, I'll say that. In my opinion, the right thing by seeking the advice of someone else, you know, your sponsor, your spiritual advisor, your whoever, and like running that idea by them of like, do you think it would be okay to get back into this environment to go back to what I love? And I think that that's important if we're if we choose the path of twelve step that we utilize our sponsor that we call them that you know the, that our sponsor or spiritual advisor knows what's going on in our lives and that we have someone else with an outside opinion help us make some of those bigger decisions because i know if it was left up to me and i didn't have that input from from sponsor i would have probably made some really dumb decisions so it sounds like you did it the right way you know you talked it through and and i think it's awesome that you were able to go back to something that you love Aw, thank you. Thank you for your words. 
Should I keep rolling with parts of my story? What's our format? Yeah, yeah, go for it. There, there's not really a set format. It's just kind of whatever happens. <laughs> me just talking till you cut me off. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. So, all right, I'll roll back into my story. And, you know, so losing a parent was very difficult. And, you know, I went back to my job as a dancer. And that was what led me out to Las Vegas in 2013. I came out here for the pole expo, which is athletic pole dancing, the pole industry. And then the following year, I came out for the gentlemen's club expo. And I had made some sober friends because when I would travel, it was still always, you know, recovery first, making meetings, doing what we do. I made my first sober friend at a midnight meeting here in Vegas. He found someone that would let me rent a room. And so I moved out here and I've been out here ever since. And I enjoy visiting Pennsylvania. So recovery, I really did the deal, the the 12 step outline and um, fully working a program. And, you know, the corny sayings are true. If you don't stray from the basics, you don't have to get back to them. And uh, I still go to groups regularly and I still have a spiritual guide I talk to regularly and I help others going through the whole entire process, like writing down assets and defects and being taught that when I look at a defect, it's not for me to beat myself up, but to be like, oh, this is a a shortcoming. What is the asset that I want to strive towards? Like when I got sober, it's like it's flipped in in recovery because when I got sober, my defects were like, I'm a procrastinator. I'm very slothful, lazy. Well, I still love instant gratification, but instant gratification was on there. And then over time, like, you know, my assets really became like, I became, I'm a very disciplined person. I work out a lot. I eat a good diet. And then it's like, now all of a sudden I'm turned into a perfectionist. So, you know, flip-flop some of the defects. Another part of my story, so I'm skipping around a bit because I'm used to, you know, meeting format, sharing and, and sharing more experience with going specifically through, you know, all 12 steps, steps one, two, and three, doing it right out of the book, writing an inventory, doing my columns. I was willing to make amends to all the people I had harmed. And I walked through that process even though I didn't want to do all of them, I did because it was that hardcore message of like, do you want to stay sober or not? Are you going to do the work or not? So there was always that nice bargain that if you're not willing, just be willing to be willing. And that helps if, if you're in a jam and, and you know, you don't want to do something, just be willing to be willing. 10, 11 and 12. I feel like I'm, I'm jumping all over the place. You're fine. You're fine. Because I'm guessing it's mostly 12 step people that listen to your interview, right? Yeah. Okay. So that, that lingo prayer and meditation is definitely one of my most absolute favorite things ever. What recovery taught me is prayer is having a conscious contact with my creator. And I am very, a very spiritual person. I went to Catholic school for eight years. So I had that imprinted in my heart. And that's still very much a part of my personal practices is incorporating my childhood faith into my regular, I call it my spiritual diet. My spiritual diet is diverse and eclectic. 
I call it, because living in a city like Las Vegas, I meet a lot of different people with a lot of different expressions and interpretations. And I always like to listen to other people's concepts and understanding. And so I, I try, like, especially in an op- a more open format, I always want to be able to connect with people and not be like, well, this is my view and be black and white and lose the opportunity to connect with someone. But for me, uh, I love prayer and my relationship with God. My faith has carried me through all my struggles and recovery. And I also, you know, lost another parent in sobriety. So both my parents died and September, 2020 was like I said, I didn't specify, but other parents died after, you know, after the years of meth use. And, and it was really, really hard, you know, being in recovery and trying to help my parent, like, you know, like here are the tools or, you know, and that was just hard. And it's, it's still a pain and a grief to deal with. Cause like that, that shockwave will hit me where I'll be like, I can't believe both my parents have died from drugs and alcohol, like a suicide and stroke slash overdose, I guess, toxicity, lethal ingestion was what the death certificate said. So like, that's where I'm like really vigilant that I'm like, you know, if I were to rest on my laurels and not work my program, that's what I'm looking at. Like alcoholism and drug addiction is a life or death matter for me. And I do sometimes feel in the recovery community, like, because I'm so open about my, my job, I'll feel like judged or anyway, but that's, that's different. See, now I'm scattering around too much, but (sighs) work in progress. So. Yeah, that's where I'm at in my journey with certain things. I'm grateful I had the opportunity to share like my whole story and the different layers in a in a in a podcast like this. Like it it kind of was like a new experience. But to be able to talk about all the different aspects like my dance career and all that in one like nice little segment is it's like a active recovery process doing this. So I keep going back to meetings no matter what and doing the deal. Usually in closing, I, I ask the guests if they'd like to to share a way for listeners to contact them, if that's something that they're comfortable with. And um, yeah, so if that's something that you feel comfortable with uh, sharing your, your social medias or if, if you'd prefer not to, that's totally fine as well. Um, yeah, I've never done an interview like this where I was so open about all the aspects. Usually it's a little different because I don't even know right now. That's totally fine. Thank you for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know it takes a lot of courage and bravery to come onto a podcast and be so open and transparent and share some of the things that you did today. So I appreciate you sharing part of your story with us. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. 
If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.